struggling with, I was going a different direction. I was looking at Psalms 121. We're reading a book by Charles Finney, Experiencing Revival, and really appreciate that book. And I um, felt like in preparation for meetings this weekend, communion uh, the following week, um, just wanted to look at this subject for my own life, and I trust that you can glean from it as well. title for the message today is Hearts of Clay, Jeremiah chapter 18, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as... This potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. I was picturing the, the hand of the potter. How many of you have witnessed the potter making pottery? Most of you? Yeah, most of you have. It's interesting the way they do it. They, they get something that I think, now that's looking pretty good. And then he just kind of goes like that and it's all over and pounds it down. And he gets something out of the clay if he needs to, and it, but he starts all over and makes something else with a little bit of a lip on it. Now it's a pitcher to pour. And it's interesting how they can change that clay to exactly what they're picturing. Now, I can't do that. I, I've tried that. Um, you know, I still have some of my, well, maybe I think we threw it away by now. And that's about how much it was worth the pottery that I made. But are we moldable? Can the Lord shape us into exactly what he's, he's trying to get shaped in our lives? That's the challenge for my life. Psalms 34.18, you can turn to Second Chronicles 25. Psalms 34.18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save us such as be of a contrite spirit. Now, contrite, we don't use that word very often. You use that very often in school, contrite, no. Don't use it very often. What do you think contrite means? Save us such as be of a contrite spirit. I think, well, I think I'm contrite. I mean, uh, the English word for the word contrite would be remorse. However, contrite, as it appears in the Bible, means to be crushed. It's, it's more than being broken. The Lord is nigh unto them of a broken heart. Um, and save us such as being of a contrite spirit. It, it means broken glass. If I would throw a rock and break that glass over there, it would be broken, obviously. If I would go over there with a hammer and start smashing and crashing and just making tiny little pieces out of that glass, is that contrite? Pretty close. Actually, if I would take that glass that was broken and melt it all down so I just have a puddle at the bottom, now, now it's... Completely contrite. Okay? I, I can pour that in any shape I want. Because it, it, there's, there's no hard object in there. It, it's completely smashed, contrite. It, it's completely moldable. Now, we read these verses so many times and don't dig into what do they really mean. The Lord saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Someone who's absolutely come to the place that they're, they're moldable. 
um, that place of coming to, if you haven't found out by now, you probably never will, that's an incredible, difficult place to be at times. Lord, I'm moldable. Whatever you want to pour me into today, or this hour, or this minute, uh, I'm willing to change anything. I'm willing to be what you've called me to be. I'm willing to say what you've asked me to say. I'm moldable. I want to look at a man who meant well and actually did extremely well. He didn't serve the Lord perfectly, though, and the problem is, is it didn't bother him like it should have. He gained a lot of good understanding. Um, considering who his family was, his family was a stubborn bunch. You know any families like that? His family was a stubborn bunch. Uh, and I, I find it interesting reading uh, what these men, these leaders struggled with, uh, one after the other. Stubbornness. But Amaziah did really well, considering. Starting at verse 1. Amaziah was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. So he was moldable. He, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and yet he didn't have a perfect heart, and it didn't bother him like it should have. Skip down to verse 14. What does it mean when it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart? How wasn't his heart perfect? Verse 14, Now it came to pass, after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the children of Seir, and set them up to be his gods, and bowed down himself before them, and burned incense unto them. Wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the, other, after the gods of the people, which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? And it came to pass, as he talked with him, this prophet talked with Amaziah, King Amaziah said unto him, Art thou made of the king's counsel? Forbear. Why shouldest thou be smitten? Then the prophet forbear and said, I know that God hath determined to destroy thee, because thou hast done this, and hast not hearkened unto my counsel. So this prophet came to bring correction from God. He came to a man who was doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Remember it? Said that? This is a man who is doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. And King Amaziah told this prophet, forbear. Now that's another word that we don't use very often in our language today. It's actually a very strong word. When I think of the word of forbear, I think of, you know, a forbear whispering or, or, or be quiet or, uh, you know, just, just kind of mute it gently. But, um, the word for a bear, why should you be smitten? He says, do you, want, do you want me to kill you? Do you? I can wipe you out, okay? I'm the, I'm the king. You're, you're just trying to correct me. You be quiet or I'll hit you. I'll wound you, all right? Um, the word for a bear, actually, if we would say it in today's language, it would be shut your mouth. Okay? It, it's just a blunt, shut up. Do you want me to wound you? <clears throat> Who made you my counselor? Was the question. 
You know, hearts of clay can be ruined by a pebble of stubbornness. Just just a small pebble. Did you ever think, you know, I probably shouldn't go to that person and say anything because eh, it probably wouldn't go so well. And do we put up with that in congregations? They don't have a heart of clay, but they do what's right in their in the sight of the Lord. So we'll, we'll call that good and we'll keep going because I, I, I don't know. Have you ever been Amaziah? Hey, look, I could say a lot of things about you. You want me to wound you? I mean, we could. Or where's the spirit that says, I'm going to be moldable. God sent this man. God sent this woman. There's something that I need to be moldable in here. Something I need to learn. In assessing where I am at in my spiritual life, many times I settle for the answering the question, am I doing what is right in the sight of the Lord? And that's a good question. That's a right question. Are you doing what is right in the sight of the Lord? But yet, consider this question. Do I have a perfect heart? Do I have a crushed will? Notice what it says. Save us such as be of a contrite spirit. That means all the stubbornness is gone. All the pebbles. And it's not saying somebody's perfect and they're never making a mistake again. It's saying they're moldable. A contrite spirit means a moldable person. <clears throat> that, that's a high priority in Jesus' teaching. Um, we sang the song this morning. I really appreciated the selections of songs this morning. Follow the path of Jesus. Next phrase, next verse. Cling to the hand of Jesus. First phrase, last verse. Take up the cross of Jesus. What's that mean for you? Uh, we tend to, to re- Interpret scripture and say, well, what that means to me is I do what's right in the sight of the Lord. And I don't do what I know is wrong. Well, that's a start. But taking up the cross means you're done with self, right? Now you're going to be moldable. Well, I don't want to do that. Oh, really? That it totally blasts the whole teaching of Jesus when he says, take up your cross. It's time to give up yourself, it's time to give up your motives, and it's time to be moldable in the potter's hands. Luke 14, Jesus says, There went out great multitudes with him, and he turned to them and said, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in the day you picked up the cross, life was over as you've known it. It it was simply over when you pick up the cross. And what is Jesus saying? Look, unless you're willing to be crushed, unless your will is going to be crushed, you cannot be my disciple. Someone who is is crushed, I, I believe there's two characteristics 
of someone who's crushed in spirit that is moldable, two characteristics that's present. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Number one is that they welcome correction. They welcome correction. Proverbs 15.10 says, Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. Proverbs 3, My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Hebrews 12.6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth. Now that's a extremely picturesque, but a very strong word, scourgeth. Every son whom he receiveth. I, I feel as I study Amaziah, his life is easy to replicate. We get on a roll, we're doing what's right in the sight of the Lord, and someone offers a correction. You say, oh, Who made you my counselor? How does this break? Do I welcome correction? If I do, it means I am become. I have a heart of clay. I, I am moldable in the potter's hands. Philippians 3, verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. There's something about feeling our status that makes us look back at accomplishments, things we did that was right in the sight of the Lord, things that we stood for, and we stop reaching forward. We think, right here, I got this down. We stop reaching forward. We stop desiring growth, and we become stale. And with that staleness comes a loss of vision. Where there's a loss of vision, there's a loss of life. Whether that be spiritual. Many times we lose our spiritual vision, we'll lose our spiritual life very shortly. And so to get us out of our staleness, to get us moving again, could God send someone to correct you. To say, you know, this isn't right. You shouldn't have responded that way. Would that work with you? Could your husband correct you? you know, ladies? Uh, I'm not going to ask men to raise their hands if you think it's a shot. Think you can do it? Men, are you approachable? Can your wives correct you? And I'm not talking about correcting because... Ford isn't the way to go and Chevy's the right way, right? I'm not talking about things that are absolutely peripheral. But are you a, a moldable person? Do you take correction? There's a trap in Christianity of being someone who, who does what's right in the sight of the Lord, but their spirit is not crushed. They're not a moldable person. They're not even a correctable person. Because they have their way that they see it, and that's how they see it. <clears throat> There's a testimony in Acts 18, you can turn there, that absolutely is incredible. 
As I consider the meetings next week, as I consider communion, as I consider self-inventory, I want to consider this deeply. Many will agree with themselves that they do what is right in God's sight. And it seems like everything is great, but there's a problem in the will. There's a problem in being able to receive correction. Correction is grievous to them. There's a testimony in Acts that's incredible. There was a man here who was instructed. He had a degree, so to speak. And this was quite a man. He was fervent in spirit. He was a diligent man. He was an eloquent man. He was a mighty man in the Scriptures. He was a somebody. Look at his response when he was corrected. Acts Acts 18, verse 24. A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the Spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of God, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. When he was disposed to pass into Achaia, The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews in that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. You know, I find this situation incredible. You know, you look at Apollos, he's doing really well. He's an eloquent man. He can really speak. Um... Let's not say anything to him because if we say something, it might offend him. And, you know, if we offend somebody, you know, it's, it's over. We might ruin him. But Aquila and Priscilla realized he didn't, Apollos was not serving the Lord perfectly. And it, and it didn't bother him because he didn't know any better. When someone isn't serving the Lord perfectly, And it doesn't bother him. It should bother us. Or we got problems. If somebody isn't serving the Lord perfectly, and it doesn't bother them, and it doesn't bother us, we got problems. But they went to him, obviously in a loving spirit. And what amazes me is, I I don't read of an argument, I don't read of a split in the church where he's saying, look, I have a degree. I'm eloquent. I'm mighty in the Scriptures. Who's going to argue against me? I can line them all up. None of that. He was a moldable person. Just like the melted glass. You could pour him in. This is how it is. Yes. I wasn't looking at that accurately. Thanks for helping me in. I'm just amazed by that testimony. He was a somebody. And yet he realized... He needed to be a moldable person to keep on going with God. Moldable people. Willing to be corrected. And the second um, thing that comes along with a moldable person after correction, willing to be corrected always brings a second evidence of a moldable life, and that is action. Charles Finney, and this is where I read a saying that made me read it about 20 times because I'm slow in getting it. But Charles Finney says, Stop giving yourself credit for desires that do not result in action. 
That is a cult in Christendom. Stop giving yourself credit for desires that do not result in action. Um, if you would... Well, let me tell you this. I've been really studying that. And it's amazing how much I give myself credit for just having a desire to do something. But there's no action. It is amazing how much we credit ourselves. Turn to John chapter 21. We must not create a Christianity that is big on theology of desires and little on the reality of action, is Charles Finney's statement. If we're correcting a child for disobedience, the end goal isn't if they were admit that they were wrong. The end goal isn't, I'm sorry. The end goal is now that there is an action to do what the correction was about. They go to work. John 21, verse 15. Speaking of Peter here. Jesus speaking with Peter. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, for I am thy friend. This is Peter's word. And he said unto him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me, agape me? And he said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I am your friend, I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. And he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jodas, are you my friend? He took out the word agape in that one. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Are you my friend? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I am your friend. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. I, Jesus three times says, how do you rate your desire for me? Lovest thou me? And three times Jesus never settled for a commitment of desire. Jesus, I'll be your best friend. That desire three times was commanded to have an action. You want to say you love the Lord? Then feed my sheep. But don't say you love the Lord if you're not willing to feed the sheep. Well, I'm not into to teaching Sunday school. You know, that's just not my... Oh, really? Do you love the Lord? Well, I do. I really do. Then feed my sheep. Well, no, I don't want to do that. So, we make a religion out of our Sunday... Or out of our Sunday... We make a religion out of our desire. Hey, my desire, I love the Lord. Really, where's the action? Well, no, I'm not into action. But wow, my heart has is, is just got a strong desire for the Lord. I believe we need to grasp this. I need to grasp this even in a greater way. We heard this saying many times, good intentions pave the road to hell. But I always think of that as somebody else. Right? That's not me. But good intentions do pave the way to hell. And that's for all of us. What does James say? He that knoweth to do good. So there's your intention. There's your desire. You know that you should do it. And doeth it not. What does James say? To him, that's sin. Why? 
You can't have a religion of desire without action and think, I'm fine because my desire is just, I just really love the Lord. James says it doesn't work. Here I see Peter was corrected. Brash, bold Peter was corrected by Jesus Christ. And it wasn't enough for him to settle for the right desire. Lord, I'm going to love you now. Jesus says, yeah, but that desire has to result in action. You can't make a religion out of desires. You can, but it's not the right relationship with Jesus Christ. Desire of itself isn't virtue. If it was, we'd all be professional Christians. Desire of itself is not a virtue. If it was, I'm telling you, we'd be pros. We would get trophies and medals for how Christian we are if desire itself was a virtue. If you were talking to a parent, and the parent was saying, you know, my child was really living a lazy life. Really, really lazy. Ten hours a week. Five hours a week. But they've changed their life. Really? Are they working full time now? No. No, but they want to. All right. So the desire is virtue? Where's the work? It's time to work. No matter how great that desire to work is, it's still outweighed by the desire not to work at something. Can you push a cart? Can you cut a tree? Can you, can you milk a cow? Can you? Surely there's something to work at. Well, no, they totally changed their life. They really desire to work now. If I would ask you, do you desire to go on the mission field? Young men, do you got a vision? Young ladies, do you got a vision? Do you desire to go on the mission field? Do you desire to lead a soul to Jesus Christ in your lifetime? Do you desire to be a light in your neighborhood? Yes. But then we justify ourselves by thinking, well, our desire to do that is probably more than other people have. And then we give up and we live the party lifestyle. And we think somehow, because I have a desire for the mission field, and because I have a desire to lead someone to Jesus, because I have a desire to be a light, I can live the party lifestyle. I can run, 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 go, go, go. But I'm okay because my desire is right. Stop giving yourself credit for desires that do not result in action. That's a bigger one than what we recognize most weeks. I intend to be a church member. Oh, really? I desire to support the church. Oh, really? And where's the action? Well, I get home at quarter to seven and I'm tired after standing behind the register all day. And yet there's other people saying, well, after milking out 
milking the cows three times in the day and working out in the field all day. I got home at eight and I still made it. So I can stay home, no action, but great desire. So, hey, it's more than most. And Jesus is saying, he's looking for somebody who's, who's done with that type of life and that type of outlook. Someone who's willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Absolutely moldable. Self-life is, is done. I'm done with that. Many people give themselves great credit for desires that never result in action. On the mission statement, I ask if you've got a vision for mission. Can I say this? You don't have to go to Africa on the mission field. Some of you, I believe, should. But you don't have to go to Africa. Friends, you can, you can live your life. You can go to your job. You can be giving it all you've got and making all you can so you can support the propagation of the gospel to the world. You can have the vision for mission work right where you're at. Or you can go yourself to propagate the gospel. Or you can just justify yourself with a desire to help propagate the gospel. But meanwhile, hey, there's all kinds of activities I can take off work for and run to. And I I, I lose focus on the mission. I have a mission. I'm going to propagate the gospel like we heard this morning. By giving away. I I think we've taught young people that you work to give. That's not what the Bible says. As we shared this morning, you work to give. You lose that mission. And you'll remedy yourself by having the right desire. But the, the action of my life won't be there. But somehow Jesus tries to bring that correction and we're, yeah. Because we feel justified by a desire. Moldable in the potter's hands. Um, All out action is the real Christian life. You know, I, I find it interesting. You study early Mennonites, and um, they weren't huge on theological instruction. You know what they said? You tell me what I need to do according to scriptures, and I'm going to do it. They didn't have all the words of Calvinism and all these other things that tried to wrap their heads around. They simply said, You tell me what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. Why? Did God use them if they weren't even smarter than some of our third graders? That's one thing. They were moldable. He could pour them into any situation. They were going to be what God called them to be because they were moldable. Matthew 5 also says, don't settle for good intentions. If you bring your gift to an altar... And in your mind, you say, you know, someday I should make something right with my brother or my sister. Someday I should make that right. Uh, We don't have a good relationship between whoever it is. Someday I should make that right. Someday I should work it out. And Jesus says something astounding. He says, leave your gift at the altar. 
And you go and you take an action. Not just a desire where you say, well, you know, I have a good heart towards him. You know, someday I'm going to work it out. He says, leave your gift and go take action. When your action is done, then come back and start again where your gift was. No degree of desire is good within itself. Desires of themselves are not noble. Action is a result of desire coupled with denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Him. I believe here's a battle for everyone sitting here. I believe we tend to create Christianity that's big on desires, the theology of desire, and little on the reality of action. How would you be, let's say it this way, how would you put being a light locally into action? Young people, if, if you desire to be a blessing to your fellow young people, how would you put that into action? More than just a desire and saying, well, I mean well for them, putting it into action. Older people, how do we put this into action, what God corrects us or what God moves upon us? How do we make action out of that? Rather than just, I believe the more people sit in churches settling for, well, I have the desire to do what's right. But there's not action accordingly. I believe the more we sit there with just desire, we'll become callous. We'll become a person who, great on desire, but as people look on, they shake their heads and say, oh, not sure what you would, how you would answer to God in their behalf. It's going to take denying ourselves. It's going to take taking up our cross. But as Psalm says, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And save us such as be of a crashed, a crushed, a moldable spirit. My prayer as I look at meetings, I hope the Lord can speak into my heart. But then the responsibility of just change, not just changing a theology and not just changing a desire. I'm saying, Lord, change it into action. First of all, in my home. I should say, first of all, in my personal life. Secondly, in my home. And thirdly, in the church. It all matters. The Lord save us such as be of a crushed spirit. If you're able to kneel for prayer, will you kneel for prayer with me?